I'm Shamari Reed. Welcome to Water for Teachers, a Heinemann podcast focused on engaging with the hearts and the humanity of those who teach. One thing I know for sure is that teachers are human. We have fears, we experience tragedy, we struggle. We are affected by crises and pandemics. And like everyone else, we deserve to lead lives full of peace, joy, and love. Join me and other educators as we move from logic to emotion, from the head to the heart, from thinking to feeling, and from the ego to love. This is Water for Teachers. I am beyond excited because today I have the pleasure of engaging with the heart and the humanity of a brilliant human who teaches, Cornelius Minor. Cornelius is a Brooklyn-based educator and a part-time Pokemon trainer. He's also the author of We Got This, an incredible book that explores creating more equitable school spaces. These days, Cornelius is learning how to bake from his two young children, searching for an elusive pair of Jordan 4s, and ritually rereading all, and I mean all, of the 1990s era comic books that he can find. But before I speak with Cornelius, I want to start off today's episode with a letter. After, I'll invite Cornelius to explore any and everything the letter brings up for us both. The letter I'm going to read is one I wrote for you, for all of us. Dear fellow teachers, as I write this, I will not pretend that things for us are normal. They are not. And I have come to accept that things not being normal is okay. We are living through a pandemic, a time of collective crisis. I also recognize that due to our different identities, undeserved marginalization and unearned privileges, we are not feeling the effects of this crisis equally. Perhaps like many of you, since the arrival of COVID-19 into our lives, I have experienced extreme feelings of helplessness coupled with fear and anxiety. And I have found myself lost with an extended moment absent the motivation to complete things that used to excite me, like engaging with my students' work, reading Toni Morrison, writing short stories, or planning lessons, or cooking. Where has my inspiration gone? There was even a time in which I spent no fewer than 24 hours in my bed, clenching to my comforter with the lights off and the shades drawn. As I kept my bed company, ensconced there in the darkness, my mind wandered. I reminisced on the way that things were before COVID-19. I recalled greeting my students as they entered our space and marveling at them while they collaborated with their peers on class activities. And if I was not longing to return to the past, I was dreaming of what life would be like after these trying times. I told myself that awaiting us, all of us on the other side of this epidemic was the world we deserved. However, once I realized that I had no control over time, thus no way to be certain when and if we would ever get to know that world, the fear and anxiety intensified. The feelings of powerlessness and helplessness returned and 20 minutes became 28 hours. To cope, I decided to have a vulnerable and honest talk with myself. I'll end this letter with the words that I told myself during that conversation about our current state. Words and questions that brought me some peace, and I hope they do the same for you. You are living in a pandemic. Your sanity and wholeness require that you accept this truth. Resisting this truth will not serve you or your students well. This is the only reality you have. 
the only one that matters. The past is no more and the future is not here yet. So how can you move through this present moment with happiness, peace, and love? What are you able to do right now to make your current reality more enjoyable, teaching more enjoyable? What actions might you need to take to move beyond simply trying to survive this until something better comes along to thriving and living your best life right now? I love us for real. Shamari. Now I want to invite Cornelius to engage in a conversation with us. Welcome, Cornelius. Welcome. Thank you for sharing this space with me. Well, Shamari, thank you for that letter. Like, I, I needed that. I feel like the podcast can be over now. Like, I mean, that's, that's really, I don't know what you need me for. Um, but wow, thank you. And I'm really just living in that with all of my identities. And it's so interesting, like, um, that this is a podcast for, for teachers, because I have been living most profoundly and most loudly as a father in these times, you know, that, that when our classrooms evaporated in March and my ability to leave my apartment was limited, the thing that was most pronounced in front of me was my family and, and guiding my, my two daughters um, through this alongside my partner. And so what's been interesting is as I reflect on your letter, I remember the moment when I was telling myself all of those things, but about fatherhood, um, that, that I, that I couldn't hide. I couldn't run. I couldn't live in the past. I couldn't, you know, hope for some kind of like, you know, rainbow future. Um, but rather I had to live in the very real now that my children were experiencing. And so I'm just like, all of my daddy sensibilities (laughs) are firing right now. As I think about that letter, you know, and one of the big things for me that that I have been channeling is is I I went you know not to the past the nostalgic past but to the to the historic and to the ancestral past and I have really been asking myself almost every day is like how did our people love their children you know through the kidnapping from the West African coast? How did our people love their children through the Middle Passage? How did our people love their children through chattel slavery and through forced separation of families? Um, And I've been trying to tap into that strength really and, and to love not just my biological children, but to the 32 children assigned to me by the city of New York and, and the teachers, you know, under my care as a coach, you know, and I've really been every morning when I get up, like, how do I find the strength to love the children in front of me through this pandemic? But a lot of it is channeling the strength of our foremothers. So I think a lot about like how Harriet loved. I think a lot about how even the fictitious characters in books like Beloved loved. And, and I'm really trying to be that love, like not just trying to enact that love, but trying to be that love. Let me ask you this. And it might be an abstract question and a weird thought uh-huh. conversation. But I feel called to ask you, how is your heart today? Um, You know, it's in a lot of different places. You know, uh, one of the things that I know that I do, and I'm working on this, um, that I know that when the world gets heavy, I know that I callous myself against the world so that I can do my work, so that I can serve my family, so that I can protect my community. Um, And I just know that that's my, that's Cornelius's trauma response, right? When things get heavy. Um, and, and so I do, you know, what toxic masculinity has taught us to do. I put on my tough guy face and I fight through. 
So I know I'm in that right now. <laughs> and I know when I'm in that, I need to address some things and I need to like work through some things. And what's interesting is this pandemic has actually been a bit of a, a paradise for me that, you know, I travel a lot. You know, I spend about 12 to 14 days a month on the road. So that's half a month that I spend away from my children, serving teachers and students around the world. And so this March, when classrooms, like physical classrooms shut down, this March, uh, March 2020, was the first time in the lives of both of my children that I had been home for more than two weeks. And so really, when the pandemic hit the hardest, and especially here in New York, you know, there were days when we were losing one, two, three hundred people a day. You know, and so even when I reflect on the experience of New York, everybody lost somebody, right? But when those days felt darkest outside of my apartment, they were most light inside my apartment, just because I enjoyed the company of my children, you know, that they have gotten used to asking the question every morning when they wake up, is daddy here? You know, and I'm using some faraway hotel, you know, you know, doing important work, but still like work that kept me away from my family. And so this March, when we were really, you know, on the one hand outside my apartment, you know, for my community, we were suffering, but inside my apartment, I was really just getting to know like my kids, you know, and I know them, but like now I feel like I know them, know them. And so from March to like July, we didn't go anywhere. And it was every morning we playing games and I'm reading you stories. Like I read my daughter's like The Lightning Thief from front to back, all the Rick Road. And I read, I read them, you know, all of Kwame Alexander's books. We read um, Renee Watson together, you know, and just that they've never experienced, like, you know, every kid in America feels like his experience a read aloud from Mr. Minor, except for my own two. And so like, I just like relished in that. Um, and so for a long time, my heart was great. Um, but then, you know, like, you know, the summer is what it is in America, you know, and, and when we say it's hot outside, when, when brown folks say that, we mean that these people are out to get us in some kind of way through the erasure of rights or the denial of access to resources. And this summer, particularly, it was the reminder that the police will come get you and no laws will hold them accountable. So this extrajudicial killing of Black folks, you know, with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you know, I found myself kind of slipping out of that, like, nesting mode back into combat mode. You know, I know how to fight these fights really well. You know, um, you know, one of the things that I talk to my dad about this all the time, and my dad hates that it is this way for me, but he was like, Cornelius, you're a born fighter you know, that you thrive in this kind of intellectual and spiritual combat. Um, and, and you're good at winning those battles for people. But, but he's like, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I'm really sad that my son has these gifts. You know, and often I look at myself and I'm like, why is my talent the one to go out there and fight? You know, why couldn't I play a trumpet? Or why couldn't I, like, you know, the, the, why is it my talent? to go and, and, and fight these sometimes unwinnable fights. And so I felt myself slipping back into that mode where um, specifically with Breonna Taylor, that, that got me. Like, you know, again, I have daughters, right? You know, and so, and I put them to bed every night and I was really proud of that because I wasn't in hotels, I wasn't flying. And so I know what it is to watch black girls sleep, you know? And so, like that was real for me. But yeah, so I'm back in, I'm back in the combat, you know, because after that, it was how do we start school again and protect our children and protect our teachers and protect our families. And then it went from there um, to this election and really 
you know, knowing what I know about America, I knew what it was, you know, like, you know, you know, I knew what it was before Trump, you know, that the people like to think that these problems are, you know, 45 problems. These aren't 45 problems. These are problems from the Articles of Confederation. These are problems from the Constitution. Like, you know, we ain't been humans since jump, <laughs> you know, like that they, they took out pens. <laughs> right. So knowing that, and again, yeah. that truth, and saying that this is not new, that there has been, there's just a history and a legacy, if you will, and then you add on epidemics, right? What compels you to fight? Why not give up? Why not be like, yo, I'm gonna chill with my girls, I'm gonna have yeah. whatever, some kind of beverage, I'm gonna chill with my wife. Yeah. Why go out there? Um, Cause I know how beautiful we are. You know, I see us. You know, that like, um, I've seen magic before, like in a real way. Like, like, you know, people joke all the time or we say in jest to each other that black folks are magical, but like, I've seen it. Like, you know, I, I taught in the Bronx and I know what it's like to watch the kids walk to school. You know, I've been out here in Brooklyn and I know what it is to watch the kids, you know, wield words like swords or wield words like comforting pillows. Like, I know what that is, right? You know, like, um, you know, Walt Disney says that, that magic is when expectation, um, ex- well, when reality exceeds expectation, right? You know, that idea that, that the reality that we're living in only has certain things set aside for us, but then every day our children go out and make better, you know, um, and they do it effortlessly and with style. And so when I think about why the fight, um, because so many people fought it for me, you know, that like, um, you know, I can name all the people who, who stood in the gap for me, you know? And so, and I get to live this life, you know, in this beautiful city, you know, because of like my babysitters and my Sunday school teachers and the bus driver and, you know, the lady who worked at the bodega who used to give me food for free when I couldn't pay for it, you know? So like all of those people, you know, fought in those small ways so that maybe one day I would have a shot at fighting in these big ways. And so, I fight to honor them, really. You know, there's this this marriage of past and future. You know, that there are the young people that I serve, but there's all the people who made small sacrifices, you know. And so I think that's it. Yeah, you know, I love that you bring that up. I and mean, it takes me back to something you said earlier, just about holding space mm-hmm. to reflect on all the people who have come before us, who have given up things, who have made sacrifices so that you and I can be having these conversations. And for me, that always goes back to love. And so when folks ask me, why are you here? It's because someone loved me enough to sacrifice, to extend themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yes. You don't even know me yet, that I am here. And so what I hear in you now say is you're doing the same thing because you know how beautiful we are and because you love us for real, that you're willing to fight. You're willing to maybe not always be there to tuck in the girls. I mean, those are sacrifices, Cornelius. Yeah. Make sacrifices that I'm sure you're seeing now because mm-hmm. you've been home and you're like, I've missed some of this. Yeah. Only love, I think. People have their, their different thoughts. I'm, you know, I'm all about love, but yeah. only love can move us to make those kinds of sacrifices to improve the, the lives of people we don't even know yet. Of course, those we know, but yeah. generations of young people to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and everybody who's here now been here before. You know, and so so even if, you know, for the kids in St. Louis that I don't know, or for the kids in Los Angeles that I don't know, for the kids in South Florida that I don't know, they've been here before. So so we know each other some kind of way, you know, that like and so I am, you know, 
really just like, you know, when I meet kids for the first time, you know, especially because I meet so many kids around this country, one of the things that I love telling them is I love talking to them about who I sense in them. So like, I love meeting little boys and being like, you sound just like Frederick Douglass to me. Let me tell you who that is. Or I love meeting like, you know, young kids and being like, yo, you sound just like Mary McLeod Bethune. Let me tell you who that is, you know? And so, you know, and I like to tell these kids, we've been here before. So like, so this energy you're giving me right now, you know, that's, that's that Louis Armstrong energy. You're going to take something real crappy and turn it beautiful. And, and I see you right now, you know, and so I love meeting kids and helping them to understand that all of this has been prepared for us and, and, and we're going to move forward in, in really powerful ways. You know, making me think of something you tweeted, oh gosh, I don't know, last week, maybe the other mm-hmm. day, but it was from, and I'm not, let me say this to all the mm-hmm. comic book fans out there, yeah. I'm not a comic book reader, <laughs> so I don't know, I'm going to need Paul and Cornelius to like, you know, help me out, but yes. something, there was a photo from, I think, New Avengers number one. Yes, New Avengers number one, yeah. I'm looking at it here, and again, I'm not a comic book reader, <laughs> I read it, please fill in the gaps. But it looks like Black Panther, okay? Yes, it's Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some other characters with him. But when he says this, and I'm going to just read from the, the photo you tweeted, pride. Pride and not shame, which is what we feel for the world out there. Great societies are crumbling around us, and the old men who run them are out of ideas. So all eyes turn to you, our children, to build us something better. And you tweeted saying, this was your why. Say more about one, what happens in <laughs> New Avengers yeah. for those of us mm-hmm. who are not ready. I mean, <laughs> spoil it. But also, what do you mean this is your why? So, wow. You know, so my whole, like, I've been a comic book fan since Jump. You know, like, since, since I could, like, actually the first book I read from cover to cover was Hardware Number 1 by Dwayne McDuffie. So, like, you know, so my literacy life is built around comic books. Um, specifically, um, right yeah in my book you know like that that i that's the that's the style that i write in that is the kind of intelligence that i bring to any task you know and so people are like but you do research and I'm, but that's how i see it so even when i'm looking at statistics and data i see it in graphic novel form in my mind and so when i produce scholarship that's how it comes out of me just because i consume so much of it as a young person and even still as an adult and actually like everything like i the way I learned how to make change in the world, the first letter I ever wrote was to Dwayne McDuffie. After I read that book, you know, I was a non-reader for a long time. I read that book from cover to cover. I was so moved. I wrote him a letter um, to tell him how moved I was. And he was so moved by my letter that he published it. And so the first thing that I ever had published was in Hardware Number 7. And so 12-year-old Cornelius Minor wrote a letter to the author of this comic book, and he thought enough of that letter to publish it in the book. And I was like, oh, well, if I write to people... I can be published, you know? And so like my whole career like really started in, in those moments. But um, Avengers, New Avengers number one, um, the, it's the beginning of the end of the world. Um, and Black Panther, he's in Wakanda and the, the beginning of the end of the world starts in Africa where it began. And, and he is watching this happen. And essentially he's like, not on my watch. Like as long as I have children, children who can live out my legacy ain't gonna happen here and um, <laughs> like and and i just love like that declaration that that you might see me but you ain't gonna see my children <laughs> like, like you know and and i feel that way as a father i feel that way as an educator that like you know that 
we can pour everything into the people, you know, who are coming after us, you know, and, and what's interesting is the world is literally ending and, you know, and all of these superheroes have to come together to do it. And, and nobody's superpowers are effective. And, and it turns out that the thing that ends up saving the entire universe is his belief in his children. And, and that, you know, and so, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I'm a comic book fan. You, just, <laughs> I am now, I've been missing out my whole life. Yo, but comics are for real. Like, you know, and it's not just comics, you know, like I, a lot of people don't realize this, um, but I studied Afrofuturism. That was one of my areas of study in graduate school. So I have a literature degree, but you know, when you go to graduate school, you kind of figure out where you want to take it. And I was profoundly interested in the presence of African people in the imagined future. And at the time, there were so many mediums that would construct this utopic or idyllic future, but they would construct it without Black folks. And so the question that I always ask is like, what does that say about your present? When you imagine a perfect future and you imagine that perfect future with no Black folks in it, what does that say about your present? So something as simple as like the Jetsons, for example, like when you watch the Jetsons, they don't brought black folks in the Jetsons, like, like, you know, and so, so you're selling this idea of a perfect future where robots assist us with everything, but somehow you remove all the black folks um, and, or, or there were one or two characters, you know, and so, and, and I really connected a lot with my past, you know, I'm Liberian, I'm from Liberia, right, and, and the central trope in a lot of contemporary science fiction is that some wrong with earth, we got to go to a new place, right? And so this idea that space is the place and that was embodied in the music of Sun Ra or in the music of, you know, like George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, you know, that idea that we're going to catch the mothership because here ain't the place, you know, and, but that connects back to the Negro spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. So like, we got to get out of here, you know, and, and that whole sci-fi ethos, the more I started studying it, the more I realized that that's really who I am. You know, like when you study, the story of Liberia, for those of you who are listening, again, Liberia was founded by formerly enslaved people who left this country and returned to the African continent. So that idea that here ain't okay, I'm gonna find another place for me. You know, that, that like, you know, when I was reading all this sci-fi, I didn't realize that it was already in my DNA, that my people three generations before this left this continent and went back to Africa, you know? And so I was really just interested in all of the different ways that Black folks have imagined themselves in the future and, and have projected that imagination onto our current reality and onto our children and onto our literature and onto our art and onto our dance. You know, that's the kind of stuff that energizes me. So like, you know, when you watch like Black kids dancing, that's from the future. You know, like they're, they're dancing through this now, but what they are articulating with their bodies is that there's a better place for us, you know, and, and we're going to make that place right here. You know, when you watch, you know, Black kids in the cafeteria joking on each other and joking on the systems that keep us stuck where we are, that joking is like, that's a liberatory force, right? That, that I'm sitting where I'm sitting, but these jokes can take me anywhere I want to go. These jokes can take me to the next cafeteria table, you know, like, you know, and so I just love like that idea that, that everything that we touch, everything that we see, when we filter it through our imaginations, we are living science fiction, you know? Um, and all that we've been able to accomplish is just like science fact, you know, that like, that we have been able to do things that people can't explain. You know, and, and I just absolutely adore that, that people are like, well, how is it that people persist? How is it that people raise children? How is it that people create this beautiful art? 
And I'm just like, you don't ask how to magic, <laughs> like, you know, that 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 what Langston did was nouns and verbs and adverbs, but what Langston did was like ethereal and ancestral, right? You know, when we think about you know, the music that was the jazz, what Miles did, when we think about, you know, the music that is the hip hop, you know, we think about what, you know, Cool Herc did, like all of those things, you know, people always look and ask how, and I'm like, nah, like how is the wrong question that, that, that really, the question is like, why did you create the conditions that force people into these postures to have to, <laughs> to create these things? You know, that America loves to excuse itself by saying, oh, we put black folks in these adverse conditions and we got jazz. So aren't we great? I'm like, nah, <laughs> we should never have them conditions in the first place. So this, this, this byproduct is us turning poison into honey. But like, you know, like, and so that's the kind of stuff, again, that excites me. That's my why. And so when I read Black Panther, when I, you know, listen to hip hop, it just reminds me of two things. A, how messed up this reality is for so many folks, but then B, our ability to craft this reality into, into something better. Yeah. Are you afraid of anything? Um, I have an interesting relationship with fear. And again, like I, I, I tend to callous myself against the world. Um, you know, the other night, I, I am. I am. Like, um, I... I am afraid of things, but I do not, um, my relationship to fear isn't a traditional relationship to fear anymore, but I am very afraid of things. Um, and I, and I process this a lot through writing. Um, I I'm afraid that like my daughters live in a world that is never going to respect their humanity. You know, like I'm all the time. Like I think about that every second. Um, but like my relationship to that fear um, is not like um, one defined by paralysis. My relationship to that fear is almost manic. I can't stop working. Um, and, and I know I won't achieve a solve or I know I won't discover the thing, but like I want them to see like that their daddy fought every second. Yeah, yeah, so that's, Oh yeah, but fear in a big way. You know, like uh, when I was, uh, this was when I was 19 years old, my friends and I were victims of a hate crime. Like um, somebody planted a bomb um, in a classroom in a building where I was studying. Um, this, I was in college, I went to Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida, historically black college, um, founded in 1887. And, and, and this white supremacist came to campus and planted a bomb on the campus, you know, and this was before September 11th, you know, 2001. So our country did not have a discourse or a language for terrorism. There was no language to describe what had happened, right? And, and I remember being on campus um, during that time. And at the time I was student body president. And I remember talking to my father about like what you do in a situation like this. Like, I mean, I'm 19, like, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s, so I understood, like, you know, gang life and drive-bys and things like that. But, like, people putting bombs in your classrooms, that was, like, some G.I. Joe type stuff. Like, that was just, like, I had no context for that. And, um, but my father did, right? You know, my father survived the Civil War, you know, in Liberia. And, and I, as a young person, I don't remember it, but I lived through part of that. And my father reminded me of that. He says, son, you know you have lived through part of a civil war. Like you don't have active memory of it, but it's, 
it is in your experience that you you have have lived through things like this before. And I remember him urging me to stay on campus and he was just like, you got work to do that your friends have not lived through a thing like this before. But but your people have been bombed before and you have, you know, you were an infant, but you have been through it. And so he's like, there are things inside you right now and there are things that you can do right now that other people can't. And so I need you to stay on that campus and to help people make sense of this thing that is very much senseless. And he's like, it is not your responsibility to do so, but somehow I sense it's your calling. And um, and those are words that I continue to grapple with, right? Like the things that you want to do versus the things that you were called to do. Does it ever feel too heavy, Cornelius? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you know, I'm also blessed to have really powerful friends, you know, that like, um, you know, I say all the time, loudly and as often as possible, that my partner is the best person on the planet Earth. Shout out to Cass Minor. But like she sometimes will talk about a thing and I'll be like, I'm not even going to say this to her because she's going to think it's impossible. And I'll just say it to her and she'll be like, oh, well, maybe we can do that by Tuesday. You know, and so, and so I'm around people who, who don't think in terms of impossibility or limitation. And so I'm really lucky in that regard. That, that both my, my blood family and the family that I've curated around me here in Brooklyn, like people keep me loved up, you know, and, and I am so grateful to all of them. You know, even when I think about how I even got to college, you know, um, one of my Sunday school teachers was this woman named Miss Jones. Um, and she was a retired teacher and living on a fixed income. And, and I remember when I got accepted into college, she gave me a card um, with $5 in it. And, and she told me, she's like, you know, I don't have a lot of money to give you, but this is what I got. And, and I want you to take this $5 and like, and do something. And I remember like knowing how much like $5 like was to her. And, and my mom made sure I didn't forget. My mom was like that $5 like was what she had set aside, you know, for part of this week. So she's going to miss a meal or two this week for your college fund. And, and so that, you know, so all this stuff is heavy, but like when it's heaviest, I remember, I'm like, yo, people have made real and present sacrifices for me to be able to carry these things. And so. You are loved and you know that. Because you know that you get to go and gosh, I don't know, create the world that you deserve, right? Yeah. 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 And so, you know, when we think about going back to your original question, what keeps us going? Like, I hope that the kids that I interact with feel as loved as I felt coming up, you know, that, um, that my, you know, again, the people in my church, the people in my neighborhood, the people in my school, everywhere I went, like, I knew that like my blackness was beautiful, my brilliance was beautiful, my mistakes were beautiful and not in any artificial kind of way where people still let me fail and people still let me be a knucklehead and people still punish me when I need a punishment. But it was never in this like sense of Cornelius, you are lacking. It was Cornelius, the whole universe is inside of you. Why did you let us down? Or Cornelius, the whole universe is inside of you. Why aren't you living up to your potential? And so at every corner, even when people were dissatisfied with me or angry with me, I knew that I was loved. And, and really that's my pedagogy that even when I'm angry with kids, even when they have not met my expectations, like I want them to know that yes, even your mistakes are beautiful. I'm gonna still hold you accountable. 
but your mistakes are absolutely beautiful. Yes, even your shortcomings are beautiful. Like, you know, that I want people to just be like, you know, so much of the discourse of who we are, um, not just as black folks, but as, as humans, as teachers is about, you know, the things that we lack, you know? And so I always want to lean into that notion of abundance that, that I want the discourse to be about the things that we have. I was trying to look for the author when you were talking, like you said something, it sounded almost like this quote that I'd heard. And I randomly stumbled upon it one day Googling, you know, I forget what I was Googling, but I was getting ready to talk to, you know, my mentor, Yolanda Silly Ruiz. We were gonna talk about love. And I was on Google and I clicked the wrong place, but I got to this quote and the quote was, you can't teach kids, you can only love them. And I don't remember the author of that quote right now, but I'll definitely make sure I include the information you know, in the episode um, description, but that idea that you can't teach them, you can only love them, make sure they're loved up. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Like, you know, and that was my whole upbringing, my whole upbringing, like everywhere I went from the candy store to the, like, you know, to the bodega, everywhere, you know, Um, and, and even instances that didn't feel like love as I reflect on them now, you know, and so, so wanting to make and wanting to make sure that I do so in ways that are not selfish, right? That, you know, I think about John Coltrane and when he tried attempts to define love in a love supreme. And I think about Bell Hooks when she writes all about love, you know, and so I, I, I'm always wanting to make sure that, that the thing that I love um, in other people or the things that I love in other people are not things that are tied to my aspirations or desires, but rather are things that exist in them, you know, purely because they are in them and they are beautiful. And so you know, so much of what we call love sometimes when we say we love our students is really a love that is tied to the transaction of their ability to do assignments for us or to the transaction of them doing what we say when we ask them to do it. And so I'm really trying to move away from that and to say, like, when I love you, I love you absent of my aspirational connection to you or absent of my expectations of you. And it doesn't depend on the things that you will or won't do. It's yeah. I love you right now in your current state, in this present moment, whether yeah. you or not, you yeah. know, whether you perform the way I want you to or not, I love you. And I think that goes back to what I was trying to tell myself earlier in the letter is stay present, stay present. This reality is all that you have. This young person in front of you, they are who they are. Feel about them, not how you feel next week if they do these things, not, oh, what will you do when they, I don't know, do something that you might think is an act of defiance, but in this present moment. Absolutely. Whether they do or not. Do you love them? And I think that it's so, so important that for me, the answer is yes. The answer has to be yes. It must be yes. And if not, we need to sit with ourselves, man, and do real internal work. If you feel that you aren't able to love your students in their current state, regardless of the things they do or don't do for you, (laughs) waffling or wavering between like, do I, do I not? It's time to take a a seat. Absolutely. You know, and I take that seat often, you know, like I spend a lot of time teaching myself or learning from students how to love them, you know, that I think that part too, that like these, these conversations about teaching happen sometimes where we talk about like what it means to, to kind of step into our full humanity as teachers, but we also don't acknowledge publicly. And so I want to make sure to acknowledge publicly that there are times lots of times, most of the time where I cannot um, for some reason, or I have not, or have failed to step into my full humanity as a teacher. And so part of being, you know, truthful is 
acknowledging the times where this is a time where I fail to love this student, or this is a time where I fail to love this group of students. And so taking that seat that you are just to take and really reflecting on that and being like, well, why didn't I, or why did I fall short? You know, even this week, you know, we're coming up on Friday and on like Monday, I let, you know, it's assessment season, right? So we got parent-teacher conferences coming up and, and I started stressing out about parent-teacher conference just because it's been so difficult to even think about grades right now, right? Like what is a grade in a pandemic? And, and so I started panicking. What am I going to tell parents? You know, I don't have like papers to show them like I used to, right? Like I don't have notebooks that I can say, this is what your kid did on Tuesday. You know, so all of those things that, that I used to have, those artifacts that would communicate kids' proficiency in any number of areas, I don't have those right now. And so in my panic to assemble something that I could grade, on, on Monday, instead of preparing my kids emotionally and intellectually for the week that was ahead of us, I started panicking and demanding that notebooks be turned in and papers be submitted. And, and I lost my mind for 50 minutes, just a period. But for 50 minutes, I started believing the hype that I needed some kind of grades. And I lost my mind for 50 minutes. And I remember um, as people were leaving the Zoom room, this one young man was just like, yo, I thought you was going to talk to us about the election coming up. You always prepare us for things like, and you didn't today. Um, so we about to go into Tuesday and we don't have a word from you right now. And I had forgotten, like I, I had just, because notebooks, right? Because grades, because parent-teacher conferences are coming. And, um, and, and again, it was one period. So I was back in my position of love, you know, for the next period, but like I needed to take that seat. I needed to, and to really sit with myself. And unfortunately I only had three minutes before the next group came in to sit with myself. But I was like, what are you doing Cornelius? That like you are stressing kids about notebooks when a lot of kids are stressed about their immigration status, when a lot of kids are stressed about their parents' employment status, you know, specifically given the outcome of this election, you know? And so, so having to put those things in perspective that your stress over a notebook when, when some kid is thinking that the re-election of 45 might mean that their immigration status is in peril for real, you know, but you put a notebook over that, you know, but you put a paper over that, you know, and I did that. I own that. I did that on, on Monday. And so, so the work of love isn't as consistent as the storybooks would have us believe. Um, that the work of love is this, like, some days I'm on, some days I'm not. And the days that I'm not, I got to sit with myself and uncover why I'm not. Thank you for, for sharing that. I think it's just a reminder, and this podcast is really all about that, but that teachers are human too. We are humans. We make mistakes. We do, and it's okay. I think the important thing is that we acknowledge them, take responsibility. Think about the consequences those mistakes might produce for our students. Sit with ourselves and then reflect, all right, moving forward, how might I um, try to do this differently? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just being open to that feedback, like, cause it would have been really easy for me to say to that young man, you can't talk to me this way on my zoom. Right. That would have, it would have been really easy to dismiss him. Like you, you go to your next class, like how dare you unmute your mic and speak to me in this way. Um, but I had to really listen. Like he was expecting, cause I had built an expectation of who I am in the institution. So he was expecting a certain kind of love that he didn't get from me. And so he demanded it. And, and so many times we tone police kids, right? Because it would have been really easy to, for me to say, check your tone, don't speak to me this way. You know, like, um, but I had, so I had to sit with his anger and sit with my mistake at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Right? And move yeah. love. And so in thinking about our humanity and thinking about your humanity, 
forgetting the fact that we make mistakes and we're super complicated and there's mm-hmm. so many things, right, that contribute to the way that we move through the world and that contribute to the way the world reads us. As a human who teaches, what do you wish others knew about you and your work? Hmm. Two things. Um, I wish um, that people knew that it is hard for us to that one of the things that, um, and I don't know how to deal with it, like um, that that people see me, they see us doing the work that we do and and they dismiss it. So they'll be like, oh, Cornelius, you only connect with those kids like that because you're Black too. Or, you know, and, and, and so I'm like, logically that don't make sense. <laughs> like, like, like so, so all Black people, Melon just qualifies you to be a great teacher. Like, 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 I would like to say that's true, but we know that's not. Um, and, or, or Cornelius, you're so brave. And so you can do this work, but I can't. And, or, you know, and I think that those, I find those things just incredibly dismissive, like that, that people don't see the hours that we study or, or the, the days that we spend in reflection with our friends or the, or the evenings we spend, you know, crying in the shower because we don't want our children to see us crying in the living room, you know? And so all of those like things, like it's, it's, it's hard for us too, but we do it because the temporary discomfort of right now is worth the eventual liberation. And, um, and I get so upset with people, even now, as we watch these election returns come in and I know this podcast is going to air later, but right now, you know, all of the excuse making that people are saying, well, you know, I don't really talk to my relatives about politics. I don't really get them to vote. I didn't really talk about Donald Trump's white supremacy at my dinner table because that would have made things uncomfortable. And that we do uncomfortable every day and people dismiss that. Oh, you're just good at it. I'm like, no, it is just as uncomfortable for me every day as it is for you to spend two minutes talking to your uncle about why he's a racist or for you to, you know, spend, you know, three minutes with your auntie talking about her homophobia. Like, you know, and and so, so I wish when people saw the work that people knew that it wasn't easy. But then at the second thing, at the same time, that it's not easy. It is also incredibly joyful. Like never am I happiest than when I am working with children um, toward our collective liberation. And collective liberation can look like a lot of things. It can look like an argument essay. It can look like an art project that we do in seven period. It can look like the virtual band concert that we're getting ready to have because we can't have an in-person band concert. So collective liberation, depending on the day, can look a lot of different ways. And so at the same time that this work is hard, it is so incredibly joyful and meaningful. And, and, And for every hardship, it feels like there are 20 resulting triumphs. Um, but, but learning to measure those triumphs, not in economic terms or not in terms of like big awards, but triumphs like, like Shamari came to school today, that's a triumph. Or, or, or somebody asked to play an instrument today who didn't want to play an instrument last year, that's a triumph. And so learning to measure, you know, that I think people want these big awards or they, they want this huge revolution. And I'm like, the revolution ain't going to be that the White House turns upside down and all of a sudden it's a place of justice. The revolution is going to be that two kids who didn't want to play instruments last year selected to play instruments this year, and they have found the beauty and the joy of music. The revolution is going to be that kids who didn't feel like they had a voice or something to say or didn't feel like they have an audience discover that voice and discover that audience with an essay or a poem that they write. And so I am so fortunate that I get to see the revolution every period, you know, so... 
Wow, wow. I have two final questions. Sit with this present moment, reflect on it, whatever it means for you and your work. What would you say to other humans who teach and who are, who are teaching right now? What would you offer them? So I'm gonna use some words in English that have been co-opted into cliche. And I am going to liberate them from their cliche and reframe them in a more radical context. So um, the words do your best have been stolen from us, that, that people put them in greeting cards, they use them in this kind of toxic positivity to like excuse like the deep systemic study that people want to do, but like do your best. And here's what I mean by do your best. I don't mean do your best in, in terms of follow the rules of the establishment. I don't mean do your best in terms of kill yourself to, to make ends meet or kill yourself to meet somebody else's goals. But I do mean do your best in this idea that that like we know the way, like we knew the way before maps, we knew the way before curriculum, you know, we knew the way before school existed, that I always tell people learning predates school. So when I think about like what I want people to have in this moment, I want people to understand that the best that this universe has to offer is already in them. And all they got to do is do that. Um, and sometimes the best that this universe has to offer is, is a smile across the Zoom camera at a kid who doesn't have their camera on, but you know they need it. Like sometimes that's your best, you know? And sometimes like your best is like telling the kids that I don't got no words today, you know? And so we're gonna, you know, do some projects. We're gonna sit in this silence, but right now, like there are very few words today, but I have some ideas that, that, that don't quite sound as eloquent as I want them to sound. So sometimes your best is helping kids to see like the ugly that comes before the eloquence. Or, or sometimes the best is, is calling a colleague and, and, and helping them to understand that you can't do it today and that you need their support. And so being able to pick up the phone and be like, Shamar, I can't do it today alone. Like, I need you. Like, sometimes that's the best, right? And so, um, so like, for me, I, you know, I channel that every day that, like, what is best and, and best isn't a thing that I do for an institution. Best isn't a thing that I do to meet a certain benchmark or expectation. But best is me taking a full assessment of what the universe is handing me right now and, and being present with that thing and being fully responsive to that thing. Um, and, and doing that with respect to all of the students that we serve and with respect to our environment and with respect to like you know, those yet unborn who are going to come and, and, and inherit this legacy after us. So yeah, so do your best. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so this podcast is called Water for Teachers. And water for me always brings up themes of restoration, healing, relaxation, memory, reflection, nourishment. And so I want to end our conversation, Cornelius, with a sort of abstract question but I trust that you will take it up in a way that makes sense for you. My last question for you is this, what is your water? You know, I'm a New Yorker. And so I got to answer this in, the, in, in the, the most New York way possible. And so most people listen to this podcast won't even understand what I'm talking about. But I will never leave this city. Um, and I live in this city because of the energy of, of this city. I feel like um, when I am at my most fatigue, just like a walk down the block or a trip to the bodega or 
or sitting on a subway car and just listening to the idle chatter of students on the subway car, like that energy, that's my water. That, you know, every time I think that I have nothing left to give, the city hands me something else. Um, and so recently, because, you know, we can't be on subways um, and recently because we can't gather in large numbers, um, my water is riding my bike through the city and just like inhaling the city. And so I ride from my home in Brooklyn over the Brooklyn Bridge onto the west side, up the west side highway, yeah. all the way up to the George Washington Bridge, over the George Washington Bridge and into Jersey. And really... I don't ride for the exercise, but I ride to, to hear the sound. I ride to feel the pulse. I ride to like, to be in touch with my city, you know? Um, and so that's my water. Um, and I imagine for those of you who are not in New York, um, you have to find ways to be in touch with the people. And, and I think we do this thing as teachers, right? We're like, no, but I'm in touch with my students. And, and your students are a version of the people that show up from eight to three. But, but, but I think about the communities that those students represent. I think about the, the spaces where those students gather. I remember once asking a school leader um, who was having a difficult time in her school I was like, well, you're having a difficult time and a lot of the black families don't trust you. So why don't we go visit some of the black families um, so that we can build trust, that, that we can go hang out where people hang out and we can go patronize the businesses where people spend their money. Um, and so I asked her as a visitor to her town, I was like, well, where do black folks hang out in your town? And she said, I don't know. And, and I remember being so perplexed by that. I was like, so you know where people go from eight to three but after three o'clock, people don't exist to you. You don't know where they go. So how can you teach people if you don't know their realities outside of your school building? And so when I think about, again, my water, my water is inhaling the city. And, and I hope that wherever you are, wherever you're listening, that I hope that you have the time um, and the flexibility and the presence of mind to, to appreciate um, not the infrastructure of the city, not the the, the, the urban layout of the city, but the people of whatever city or town or municipality or village you call home. Yeah. And for those of you at home listening, I'd like to invite you to join the conversation. Take a moment and sit with that question. What is your water right now, your source of peace or, or healing, joy, relaxation? And if you feel so moved, share your responses with us. I'd like to engage with you in your humanity. You can share your responses on Twitter using the hashtag WaterForTeachers or tag us using our Twitter handle at WaterForTeachers. That's the number four, water, the number four teachers. Thank you all for sharing this space with us. Cornelius, thank you for your energy, for your love, for your light. Until next time, everybody, in peace and love. Bye. Water for Teachers is a production of the Heinemann Podcast and Heinemann Publishing. Today's show was created by Shamari Reed. It was produced and edited by Steph George and Ashley Montgomery. Creative direction from Lauren Audette and Toby Anteo. Logo design by Courtney Enos. The Heinemann Podcast executive producer is Brett Whitmarsh. <laughs>